Welcome again to the Comic Book Historians Podcast. I'm Alex Grand with my co-host Jim Thompson. Today we have a special guest, the wizard of the comic arts, Frank Thorne, who joins us today for an interview on his past and current works with a career that spans from the late 1940s, utilizing and expanding on inspirations like Alex Raymond, Hal Foster, and Neil O'Keefe, a late 1940s graduate of the Art Career School in Manhattan with an explosion of fan activity in the 70s and 80s with his comic work centered around strong, beautiful females female characters like Red Sonia. Frank Thorne, thanks for joining us today. Good to be on. So Frank, I always like to start with early background, where you were born and when you started paying attention to comics. Now in your case, I know you were you were born in 1930, so you were around as long as comics had been around in terms of comic books. Can you talk a little bit about where you were born, your parents, when you started to become interested in art, that kind of thing? Well, I was born in Rahway, New Jersey, of course, in 1930, early in the development of comic books. I had a small collection, recalled mostly the Adam and assorted characters, superhero characters, which never truly interested me that much. But then Sheena Queen of the Jungle was the one that really caught my eye. JoJo comics, and that was a turning point in a small boy's life. That connected somehow with discovering my father's collection of pornography, linked the two, and I suppose that was the the, uh, the moment that uh, the epiphany that uh, caused my interest and uh, in my development of sexy women. It, uh, that didn't come to fruition until I um, had graduated from. The Art Career School, uh, which was a uh, nut and bolts commercial art school atop the Flatiron Building in, in uh, the Lower Manhattan on 23rd Street and 5th. Now, was that right? Did you go straight there from high school, or how did that work? I had a dual career early on. I was a musician. I, uh, my lovely wife is a wonderful musician. She spent her life. Uh, she's a Juilliard person, and uh, she played the trombone then, and I played the trumpet in a, in a band camp. That's where we met. And so she's continued uh, on the music, and I had to make the decision uh, to uh, go on with my trumpet playing or go to art school. And my art teacher came to the house and said, this boy has got to go to art school. And, of course, that was very uh, decisive. And uh, I landed in the art career school with a couple of scholarships. And one of them was I paid half tuition by beating the janitor cleaning up the, the art school. Uh, after uh, everything closed, that went on for two years. How old were you when you started art school? Uh, well, let's see. I graduated high school at age 16 and then had been dabbling in doing some comic book work. I did. That was some... the romance, romance books at Standard? Yes, that was, uh, yeah. I did a couple of pulp magazine illustrations which linked me to it but it was juvenilia it doesn't count but i always like to think of it that i had a my little toe in the water then but uh it wasn't until uh 1960 i walked into king features and uh they gave me um Perry Mason, Daily and Sunday, 
to do as a, and I was just a young kid at the time. Oh yeah, we're gonna we're gonna get to that in just a minute because mm. that's that's the real key part. But I am curious about the the romance books because historically we think of of the romance books as starting with Kirby and Simon and that, yeah. but these were these were predating those. Well, it would have been it would have been the fifty early fifties. Oh, okay, so I don't know. I was never a big fan of Kirby or Ditko or any of those. I was a follower of Raymond and Foster and so forth. So I really can't claim anything. My stuff on Perry Mason was mostly Raymond swipes, but right. they loved it at the King Peter. Sylvan Bike was thrilled, and uh, it went on for a year or so, and then um, the, the strip was canceled after Earl Stanley Gardner died. Gardner and William Randolph Hearst were very good friends, but they didn't have a lot of papers, and the strip didn't have many papers, so it was canceled, and it really saved my life because I was doing it, but boy, it was tough stuff because I they did it know. all myself. And I've done all my own stuff from then till until now when I speak to you from Scotch Plains, New Jersey. Right. <clears throat> so, so Earl Stanley Gardner wrote those scripts for the Perry Mason Daily. Did you ever meet him? No, I don't think uh, <coughs> Earl Stanley Gardner wrote. Any of it, it was written by a lady, at, uh, Little, Little Brown, I think. They oh, owned it. Uh, and, I see. And I would uh, actually take the work there, and uh, it would go from there to King Features. And what was her name? I'm sorry, what, what was her name? No, the, he was saying that the company was called Little Brown that produced those. Yeah, um, yeah. Oh. So then, uh, so then you used a lot of um, Alex Raymond swipes. Was that mostly from like Flash Gordon and Rip Kirby? Oh, no, or? Rip Kirby. Rip Kirby, yeah. Okay, yeah, I got you. that was uh-huh. it. Waterworld of Mongo was my favorite of Raymond's stuff. That was glorious. And uh, he was influenced by Matt Clark at that time. And yeah. he was just a young guy and a prodigy, if there ever was one. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that was a, there's a lot of Aquaman precursors in that storyline, I think. Mm-hmm. So then you did the Guy Bennett Doctor soap opera strip from yeah, uh, 57 yes, to 63. That. Tell us about that. I was on it for seven years. It seemed we had been raising children. We have had five children, and uh, we have uh, 11 grandchildren and six or seven great-grandchildren. So, But we were in the process of producing children and raising uh, children and I was doing uh, comics uh, to support it and uh, the work on Dr. Guy Bennett was not Lefebvre didn't Lefebvre syndicate was the uh, the distributor famous for Napoleon and Cliff McBride another prodigy it was interesting working with Lefebvre and but I, in that process, in that span of a few years, I, I moved from Raymond to photographs to freehand drawing. And by the time the 60s arrived, I was drawing everything freehand without any scrap. Oh, nice. and so I, I couldn't use photographs anymore because it, it uh, held me back. So I, um, these styles began to evolve in the appearance of uh, Mighty Samson. And the uh, man with the x-ray eyes w- w- earlier was a sign of something that was happening. 
and I was coming into my own in that that point. And of course, I was doing illustrations for the New Jersey Bell Telephone, which is now Verizon. A wonderful big illustration included in your monthly bill, and oh, wow. I did a did a lot of them. They were top dollar in New Jersey here. They mm-hmm. were eight hundred bucks a pop, which was a lot of money in those days. And, yeah. Uh, I have uh, been a question for you, which is that you were doing both the dailies and the colors, the Sunday color uh, comic. Right. Did you approach the drawings the same way, knowing they were black and white versus the ones that were in color? Was it the same method for both of those, or did it vary? Was it different? In those days, this is pre-digital age, and you selected by number the colors that you'd like and. Uh, I did this all the sunny pages for Dr. Guy Bennett using that technique and hoping that uh, you know they would come close enough to match it. Uh, often they didn't, but with the comics in those days, you were as Joe Kubert once said, you were lucky if they printed it right side up. But <laughs> so. <laughs> Uh, later on, Joe and I became good friends, and I certainly miss him and his family. He, so I'm, com- I'm in the 60s with, um, you know, a developing style and ready for, and I was, at, at that time, I moved to D.C. and did a lot of work for D.C., mm-hmm. and that's Oh, yeah, where- I have a lot of questions about, about those, but let's stay for a minute more on the, uh, I want to cover the your early Dell years in the 1950s, like sort of after Perry Mason, but before he moved on to the doctor strip, mm-hmm. uh, you did a lot of adaptations of things like uh, Moby Dick and 20,000 Lakes Under the Sea. Um, yeah, that was Pauly. early on. Do you have a date for those? I can't remember when that would be. Well, we have those yeah, in the those early, are... early 1950s. Yeah. In the early 50s, right after you would have finished Perry Mason. And those were a lot of that. You were doing Alex Raymond stuff then because you were doing Flash Gordon and Jungle Jim comics as, as well. Right? Yeah, still in the area of juvenilia. I still worship. He, he was an early hero. And so was Neil O'Keefe, 20,000 Leagues on the Sea. I was struck with O'Keefe's style. Right. But which I left behind, but I don't think there's a remnant of any of it left to, when you get the moonshine McJugs or uh, right, right. Uh, or Red Sonia. <laughs> <laughs> so, not, so not, the uh, the Dell period was still kind of in the swipe file period before you kind of spread the wings. Mm-hmm. Then, but there was intimations. That Howard Leroy Davis did a book, Battling Beauties of Mine, and he he. Uh, published one of the dailies from Dr. Guy Bennett, and there's a woman in there that I drew women, but he selected one, and looking back on it now, you could tell people say, wow, that's a good-looking woman, you know, and of course, I sat up straight and said, "Mm, yeah, okay, (laughs) and I can remember going marble soon when Sonia struck really big and after the second issue he said you should you've got a talent for drawing uh, drawing women you should keep drawing women which I have been doing since then And now in 1963, you won the National Cartoonist Society Award in the comic book division. Do you remember what what book or what work that was for? That was the Ink Pot Award. It was not deserved. Uh, It was just general comic book work with my DC. I I think he he have to be a member of the Cartoonist Society to get any awards. 
Mm-hmm. The ink pot, I get, everybody gets that if they go to work. Uh, the, uh, I think this actually predates, this predates the ink. Uh, yeah, because we, we have we have two dates, which is interesting, and may, maybe you can shed light on it. You have 1963; it says National Cartoonist Society. Then it says 1978, an Ink Pot Award in yeah. San Diego. Mm-hmm. Um, those were two different awards, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. So, what was the earlier one for? Would that have been awarded in Houston? I, I, mm-hmm. I. I uh, so, do you think that was think, probably just for general comic book work? Just yeah, general. I would say. Okay. Mm-hmm. So not for any one particular run, No, no, like, just general. Yeah. Okay, I got gotcha. you. Mm-hmm. And so then you were doing adaptations in the early 60s, like Twilight Zone, oh, and yeah. a good run on Mighty Samson for Gold Key. Mm-hmm. Um, so tell us, uh, tell us a little bit about, about those jobs. The Gold Key passage was, that was with Matt Murphy, I believe, was the uh, editor. Lovely man. And I did a lot of work for Golden Magazine, too. And those were illustrations done, painted illustrations. Mm-hmm. And they hold up pretty well even today. I did a, did a lot of those. And uh, a lot for the the Cook Company, which was a Bible-producing mm-hmm. behemoth out in the Midwest, I believe. I did a lot <laughs> of kids pr- praying and oh, okay. stuff like that. Uh-huh. Not bad, but... Not the, uh, the 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 emerging thing that I became after that. Right. So were those illust- just illustrations for text, or were those actually in comics form? The uh, the print. They were they, they, they were in a comic booklet form. Ah. It was the size of a comic book, but it was uh, all in religious theme. I've never seen those. At the yeah. yeah, some of them were kind of nice. You'd have to be a, a church uh, congregant of uh, some right. church uh, to to get to, if they subscribe to it. Right, right. But that was the heyday of religion uh, that has passed, sadly, and uh, yeah. a lot of that is gone. Um, now, was it different working when when it was Dell versus when it was Gold Key, or was it all the same because it was just Western publishing anyway? Well, yeah, it was all Western. I seldom met, but occasionally cross, be in the same office with some of the great, you know, Fujitani and some of the really good guys. And Dell, and then Gold Key was the same. And um, gradually immersing myself. But, uh, you know, I had one foot there and then the other foot in uh, the New, New Jersey illustration scene with the stuff for uh, New Jersey Bell, Dash Verizon. I did a lot of the magazine work. I did portraits and and the big illustrations. It, it uh, was a robust paycheck. And mm-hmm. uh, th- that uh, saved us. We were a growing family. With the uh, house had to be expanded to make room, but now our house is of perfect size for mm-hmm. just two, and we can't believe that we raised all the kids in this in this house. Mm, that's now great. we fit perfectly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Jim, go ahead and ask uh, him about DC and all that. Yeah, so let's let's go to DC now. And is your first work there Tomahawk? I had done any number of. Twilight Zones and Boris Karloff presents, and then came Korak. So you you moved to DC and you you you're you're doing the the Korak strip, mm-hmm. and you get assigned Tomahawk, where you have at least a ten issue. Basically, you close out the the book during the Son of Tomahawk saga. Is that right? 
Well, I wasn't doing them each the same time. They, they, they were in sequence. I didn't do them both at the same time. Uh, I started with Tomahawk and then did some Son of Tomahawk. Joe Kubert was the uh, editor. Uh, that's when I first got to know Joe. Uh-huh. And then we came friendly after that. The Tomahawks I did were many artists had done Tomahawk. Many had done. But I, I don't know about the Son of Tomahawk. Those were the last 10 issues or so that you did of the book before it got concluded. And they had changed over to Son of Tomahawk to get a younger audience or a different audience, a different audience. And you kind of gave the original Tomahawk, restored his glory in the, in the last few issues of that. It was, mm-hmm. it was a very nice ending and, and uh, much loved amongst uh, Tomahawk fans. Uh-huh. Well, uh, a vital person who I met, I never met Kaniger, but uh, Archie Goodwin was, I love that guy. He was wonderful. He's the one that gave me Sonia. So I was eternally grateful to him. He died too young of cancer. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, Everyone uh, loves Archie Goodwin, it seems like, everyone we speak with. Everybody loved him. And uh, so uh, thank you, Archie, wherever you are. Right. And uh, was Joe Kubert, his artwork, an influence on you? Was it also his personality? What was it about Joe that left that impression on you? It was a mystical kind of thing. I never tried to... He was never an influence, but for some reason, my work looked like him. It was almost magical. Everybody said, Kubert did this, didn't he? You know, when I did Enemy Ace, I, I said, no. It was so easy for me to do Enemy Ace because of my affinity for Joe's work. So, uh, you know, we were both from humble beginnings. His father was a butcher, and my father was an elevator operator. And uh, we often joked about if we had been born into wealth, we would have been illustrators and used photographs uh, for Mm. all of our work. But being born in that, we couldn't afford models or cameras, so we had to learn to draw by hand. And there's the, the very seed and the nut of it all. Uh, drawing freehand gives you control of the over the whole page and the smallest of details because you're not searching for some sort of scrap. I have to find a motorcycle. I have to find this. I We just drew it and uh, in a sense faked it, but it was convincing enough to but it gives the page and the, the figures power and and consistency that you don't get if you're taking a, you have to find scrap on everything. A snake, they have to find a snake and have to, well, you, you, you have your mental file and you just do a snake. You've seen enough snakes and movies and everything, you should be able to retrieve that. I can no longer do that at age 90, but uh, I, I did it at, in my youth. Now, you were working with Kaniger on some of the war books and you also were working under Joe Orlando on some of the House of Mystery and, and horror titles. Yeah, yes, yeah. Joe was so a good guy. So let's talk about let's talk about genre in relation to all of this for a few minutes. Were there genres that you? Um, obviously, fantasy was one. But for the for the DC period, what did you like? What did you have a preference on what you were working on, or did it just not matter? I didn't want to do any superheroes. Mm-hmm. Well, that limited me. The historic stuff, which threw me to Kaniger and, and Archie, and I did uh, Civil War things. I can remember the Alamo. I think there was a couple of those. And so I had a, a limited range, and I seemed to get sons of uh, characters or the famous characters. 
And then uh, came Sonia, who was the daughter of none, uh, seemed to be perfect for me. Right. And, uh, well, before we do Sonia, I do want to cover the Atlas period, too, because you went from D.C. to briefly working for, well, there was no other option but to work briefly for Atlas because it was only around for a year or so. But you did some work for them in a number of genres, too, didn't you? Uh, now, what was the company? What Jim is talking about is the the one Atlas that was owned by Martin Goodman and Chip Goodman, and it only lasted like a year. Right. Um, back in 1975-ish, and you turned in some work for them. I did. I think I did the uh, Sherlock Holmes uh, cover, interior cover, and did a you? splash page with Dr. Moriarty, I think. Did some horror work on that, too. Yeah, yeah. It was, there were a lot of those, the uh, killer clown and the... Uh, things of that order. Right. Uh, Did you ever meet Martin Goodman or Chip Goodman? Those guys? No, but I, I, Larry Lieber, Stan Lee's brother, you know, he was the editor at, uh, am I thinking Red Circle or Atlas? I think Atlas. Red Circle uh, was, Red yeah, Circle Red, was Charlton, I think. Yeah, Red Circle was uh, Red Circle a part was of Archie, and then Larry Lieber was the editor for Atlas. Yeah, how was right. how were your interactions with Larry Lieber at that time? I, I enjoyed Larry Lieber very much. He drew. He his brother couldn't draw, but Larry drew quite well, mm-hmm. and also wrote tr- quite well. And nobody ever hears of uh, Stanley's brother, and, right. uh, but neither of them had any hair. That was the, <laughs> <laughs> that was the, yeah, the thing. Uh, 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 Stan would prance around with a toupee, which, uh, you know, you'd see him one week and he's so, uh, snatch bald. And the next thing you see, he's got a big head of hair and he's, whoops, something's going on here. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe that's, that's what distinguished uh, the two was the toupee. In 1975, this was shortly around or after the Larry Lieber period, uh, you worked on Marvel Feature 2 1975. That was your first Red Sonia comic book. And you were saying earlier that Archie Goodwin hooked you up with that job? Yes, yes. It was not Roy Thomas. Mm-hmm. Roy Thomas considered me, and he was very clear with it, a, a third-rate artist. It turned out that it was Archie that picked me, not Roy. Ah, okay. Uh, uh, Roy is responsible for Conan, and Red Sonia, actually, the whole, the whole thing is, is his. I got along with Roy fine. Uh, it was all right. We, after the poor guy, uh, knowing what he originally thought about me when they uh, came out with these big artists' edition books, they, uh, uh, Dynamite and uh, Hermes Press, I think it was mostly Dynamite. Poor, poor Roy had to write these long essays about and break down my pages that I did for Red Sonia and. Uh, it was kind of a, a payback in a way. I'm saying, well, Roy, you know, <laughs> here is this third-rate artist, and you're stuck with writing all this crap about me. <laughs> yeah. No, you're great. Uh-uh. Yeah. When you um, were doing this, conceiving it, how much did you look at Barry Windsor Smith's Red Sonja and John Bushima's and the different ones that had preceded you? How much of that was a factor, or did you just say, I'm going to do my own? Bushima was one of the great, Visual artists of all time. He was a natural. If you see, he, he, he you know, problem is he did so many pencils, penciling that uh, you know, if he didn't have get a good anchor on it, would ruin it. But if you see his pencils, they're just glorious and they, they're magical, balletic things. And we were out in the San Diego in '79, uh, I guess it was, and 
uh, we were on a panel together, and I was uh, into Sonia had taken off, and he was next to me, and he, I, I said, I, I love drawing Red Sonia. That's the best fun. And he, he didn't like to draw Conan. I said, how the hell could mm-hmm. So we met the next morning and had breakfast, and uh, just the two of us. And he, he said, yeah, well, he, Really, what I'd like to do is start a, a correspondence school, an art school, right? Uh, which I don't know whether he ever started it. Did that ever get off the ground? Yeah. In the late 70s, yeah. he did do a, an art class, yes. Uh, and people signed up for that. Some, yeah, some, yeah. some artists that got big in the 90s did start out in that school, yeah. Right. He has a huge following in Italy. Uh, mm-hmm. They claim true, him yeah. as their own. and uh, uh, But he, he was truly one of the super giants of the... He and Kubert, uh, super giants of the comic world. So, Andrea Buscinelli is uh, another super talent in Italy, and we mm-hmm. correspond. And he is uh, an heir to, in a way, of that. And he draws everything freehand. Mm-hmm. Same kind of his uh, Suspira is. Um, like she has huge bosoms, which of course interests me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So. Now, when when you work with Roy on Red Sonia, did you work from a full script or was it like the Marvel style? There was no breakdowns. I did everything, including the color with all of the books. It's, you know, a cottage industry. You have the breakdown artist, the letter, you know, I did everything myself. And uh, that went right through to to the last issue, which was my involvement with Red Sonia ended when uh, Stan asked me to come in. He wanted to talk to me and a couple of other guys, and they were concerned that my Sonia was the only book in the series that didn't look like a Marvel book, Right, and they wanted all of the Marvel books to look like Marvel books. So they wanted possibly to put an inker on me, and that's when I said farewell, and it's been wonderful, and I went on to Gita of Alazar. I see. Uh, so that's why you left Red Sonia. Okay. Yeah, that's why I left Red Sonia. She was selling pretty well yeah. at that point, and then they, uh, a series of artists uh, came along, and then they uh, they dropped I think Sal Cartuccio, somebody had it for a while, had her, and then it came to Dynamite, and they they thrown a lot of money into it. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a, another movie coming along now, as you know. I'm hearing so, dead air. <laughs> Did you know now, there's another Sonya movie in yeah. the works? Yes. You, well, there, there seems like there always is, and then something happens. It's been hard to get it actually done uh, i'll believe it when it when it actually uh shows oh, of in course the theater. yeah it's a lot of talk about it it's been mentioned oh two or three times it was announced that uh, rose mcgowan was going to do it and, right that's right and now it's uh, uh this uh, jill soloway is going to do it and mm-hmm. who is a gender neutral uh, she looks like a guy uh, um mm-hmm. and um uh, but it might work. It's like it's like a Playboy magazine, which I had a wonderful relationship for all those years. Is now it's a, a, I think they only publish four times a year, and it's run by lesbians. The complete everything, everybody, all the ladies, all ladies, and they're all. It's one fellow who's at the top of the stack who apparently runs it, and uh, 
uh, he, he's a, a, a male fellow who I think is a heterosexual. I got gotcha. you. It's a sad, a sad ending. They, of course, I don't use cartoons anymore. Right, right. Uh, that was, now, uh, now, after Red Sonia, you were working on Gita, and you also did Danger Rangerette for National Lampoon also, right? Right. right. Yeah, how, how was working with National Lampoon, and uh, how did Danger Rangerette come about? Well, it was Ted Mann was the one who approached me. Incidentally, that was, uh, stepping back for a moment, I was doing Danger Rangerette, and uh, Michelle Uri called me from Playboy and, and said, would you like to contribute something to our magazine? Wow. So I said, yeah, I'll give it a try. And almost overnight, moonshine popped out full blown from my brow. Yeah. I sent it in and they published that. And from there on, it went on to many issues. And Hefner never criticized. He loved moonshine McJugs. And after all those years, he decided for some reason that he wanted me to do full page gags. Then all hell broke loose because he always wanted to be a cartoonist. And uh, he right. micromanaged me. He Everything he was criticizing, he was driving me crazy. So that, uh, fortunately, the mag was dying and uh, it ended with the last few gags, which were pretty pitiful. Mm. A couple of them are okay, but... Uh, Did you meet Hugh Hefner? And I never met him, but I risked back and forth for memos. I got you. Uh, I have wonderful memos, stacks of memos that uh, have the uh, his notations. I never went to the mansion, but don't tell anybody that. I would like to. I would like to have them sort of know that I dissipated something terrible in those right. in the grotto and all that. But I never went there. Everybody so, always during that period. Have you been to the mansion? Have you met Hef? Mm -hmm. uh, no. Well, in some kind of say, oh yes, I've met him. He's a wonderful man. I've been to the grotto. Oh, those girls. In it. But now I was just a family man. And uh, uh, Michelle Yuri loved our involvement because we were a family. And I was sort of, compared to the, most of the people, uh, the guys that contributed to it, we, I was normal. And uh, we went on the Playboy Channel show with Linda Carell and I, and we did Gita Valzar and the Moonshine McJugs. And uh, she came out here to the house, and it was a big deal. And when it was... Uh, Broadcast, we were all thrilled, and it was a beautiful. We put a, they put us on the top of the show because we had Linda, who was at that point a pulchritudinous, fabulous looking, buxom blonde. Yeah. And uh, Linda Burl, uh, yeah, she played uh, Alizar, uh, Gate of Alzar and Moonshine. Right. Uh -huh. And I wrote the, the script for the skits, and uh, mm -hmm. They ran it on the first part of the show, and I. And most people said they never looked at anything else. <laughs> was she um, basically purely a model? Was she also a friend or a girlfriend or anything, too, or, or just a model? Well, I always call her my muse, but I have yeah. a thing about I have a lot of muses. No, she's a, she's a friend. She only lives a couple of miles from here. We've known her for years. She's married, and now middle-aged, she has uh, two sons, and... <laughs> She lost all of that wonderful, you know, a, you know what mm -hmm. age does. Well, we hear from Angelique Trouvere, who is one of the Sonia models. We hear from her quite often. 
And um, Wendy Peeney, we've reconnected after she's now retired, and we've reconnected after a, a fashion. Uh, uh-huh. So um, it was a wonderful, wonderful experience uh, because I developed a show along with the Peenies, and it's given more credit than it's due for being an early form of cosplay with the, using the, the costume characters. Uh, right. And that's what I was going to ask is in, in 78, you got a Playboy editorial award, San Diego Ink Pot Award, and you were also doing, you were dressed up as a wizard at San Diego Comic-Con, and that was a lot of the early cosplay stuff you're mentioning. Yeah, how did that come about, the whole wizard uh, persona? Well, when I was given Sonia, I was savvy enough to realize that this was a gold mine, and I uh, had a, the idea that, that I would project myself into it, which I did into the Sonia things and more so into Gita Valzar. Mm-hmm. So uh, I had the, the wizard suit sewn by a, a church lady who uh, sewed the stars and moons on it while she was in Bible class. And uh, that suit, which I wore many, many times in the shows, I had a one-man show at the uh, Illustration House Gallery three years ago, four years ago. It sold for $40,000. So, <laughs> so uh, the tale of the, the wizard suit ends w- with a magnificent sum of forty grand into the... Uh, <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's pretty cool. Uh, yeah. So, uh, And then it turned out that we we did the show several times and Wendy Peeney was so outstanding as Red Sonia that it dwindled down to just Wendy and mm-hmm. myself and of course the, the mystic's mainspring behind it all was her husband they were fans and they had plans to develop ElfQuest I think all along but between the Wendy and I and Richard he came to a culmination in San Diego when he did this really elaborate show, which would uh, had projected animations. It's a, YouTube has one of those. Uh, mm. It has to give you some idea of what what that looked like. It goes on for quite a while, and then at the at, at the end of that San Diego show, the Peenies and uh, the Thorns, and we we decided. We were each going to go a different way because they had Elfcross on their mind and I had Gita Valzard on my mind. I had mm-hmm. Linda Burley Carell on my mind. I knew she was going to be my Gita Valzard. That was the culmination of that wonderful experience. It, fun was being had by all. Can't explain it. It's great. Yeah, mystical almost. Yeah, yeah. Well, Stan Lee wrote a piece about me in the Superhero Women saying that Sonia and I met in some ancient time because of the way I had drawn her and the power of that character infused into her. It had to be something mystical. So would you say that you were able to take Red Sonia beyond where Marvel would really allow it with Gita and then combine the comic and the almost pornographic love of the female body and combine it all into Gita? Is that what kind of evolved there? Of course. Getting back to, you know, one of the seminal moments is when I discovered my father's porn photograph collection and he had also films. That came uh, handy in later in life because I went on to Iron Devil and uh, some of uh, 
the uh, I say with all humil- lack of humility, some of the best porno drawings done in, uh, in recent memory. Uh, and uh, they, they, by the way, in the one-man show that I had at, uh, at the Illustration House Gallery, they went for huge amounts of money. We uh, pulled in about a half a million dollars worth of change on a lot of it, and, and so much of it was Guy of Alzar and the, and the uh, porno stuff. Mm-hmm. Very collectible, you know, by a, sm- a small audience. They yeah. won't admit that they're collecting it. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Secret joys. This has been an awesome first half of the Frank Thorne interview. Thank you, Frank. Join us next week for the second half at the Comic Book Historians Podcast with Alex Grant and Jim Thompson. Cheers. Cheers.